Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first First match must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears! I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it was so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here on the leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men. Come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this and Caesar seem ambitious? When did the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept? Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. Mike. So welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. You know the premise of the show is that Mike and I watch movies separately and we talk about them on the show for the first time. In part one, we always talk about our overall take on the film. And today's film is 1953's Julius Caesar with an all-star cast, as they say, directed by Joe Mankiewicz. So Mike, what was your overall take on the movie? I think I forgot how good this was. Uh, if I, if you had asked me to make a list of the top ten Hollywood adaptations of Shakespeare, probably wouldn't have included this the first time around. But I would have been wrong. This easily popped into yeah. my top ten. Um, I'm gonna probably burn something that you want to say later. I will say that John Gilgood probably has. When I say pronunciation, I mean that he truly understands the depths of the line in a way that makes me understand them better. Because yes. we've we've both been reading these lines for 25 plus years, right? <laughs> right? You get your first copy of Julius Caesar, you know, in elementary school or high school when they, you know, when they tell you what happened. But it's 
unbelievable how much depth John Gilgood brings to a simple line or how illustrative scenes that I never liked in the play are. I'll, I'll steal an extra moment. There's a, a scene when Brutus and Cassius are uh, comparing one another's armies. They're talking about different strategies. Uh, I was always bored by that scene. I always skipped it. But having John Gilgood do it, uh, it's it's suddenly illustrated for me the exact relationship that Cassius bears to Brutus and how much he's afraid of him, but how much he also respects him and how much he wants to make up. Uh, that didn't come off the page to me, but it certainly came off the screen. And I feel like a lot of the movie was like that. Uh, perfect sets, perfect acting, perfect performances, even from Marlon Brando, who I think was known as a mumbler at the time. I think that was the joke in the in the press right. surrounding the movie was, how are you going to get this great mumbler uh, to play uh, Mark Antony? But boy, does he. Oh boy, does he ever. And I, and it's true. You learn so much about the play by watching it. And that's what all the great adaptations do, right? Like I remember the first time I saw like Roman Polanski's Macbeth. I'm like, oh, that's how you say that line. Or that's kind of interesting. And that's what I think great actors bring to the movie. <clears throat> this is, this is uh, I think, like the Ocean's Eleven of Shakespeare movies, right? You bring together all these stars, right? You get James Mason, you get John Gielgud, you get um, Brando, Deborah Kerr, Greer Garson, Louis Calhoun, Edmund O'Brien, and <clears throat> Alan Napier as Cicero. And of course, Alan Napier played the Alfred the Butler in Adam West Batman. The funny thing about that <laughs> is, I'm sure we would discover at least one more performance if we actually combed through it. But John Gielgud to me, of course, is a famous butler from Arthur. And then you just said that about Alan Napier, which makes me think that all the great Shakespearean actors, whenever they do, uh, you know, Hollywood stuff, they always play butlers because that's what the American imagination tells you that somebody with that highfalutin accent should play. But yeah. then when they get together, they do Shakespeare. This reminded me of another Shakespeare film we've done, which is Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth, right? It's same kind of feel where it's, it's you said the, the sets are great and they are and the battles are fine, but it's really people moving in and out of other rooms and other spaces. And really, it's, it's very um, it's very atmospheric. It's very claustrophobic. You, you, you put the camera on the person and let the person talk. And then you watch a scene, like you said, with the argument between Cassius and, and um, Brutus. You're like, oh, that's what that scene's about. Like, like both directors, I think, trust the play. Yeah, and, and the idea, I think, is that it's so unbelievably claustrophobic. So there's, you have, you feel like you should have the whole of Rome, but the marketplace is like two feet of marketplace. You know, the steps outside the Senate, um, there's, a, there's a specific box where Mark Anthony's supposed to stand and he, he prowls it like a tiger, yeah. kind of back and forth. Um, the tents are all claustrophobic in the same way. Um, they gather together in Brutus's courtyard and it's it's eight guys and they've got the whole courtyard, but they stand around in a in a tight little circle. Yeah. And I again, yes, the the performances tell you so much about the play because that's not how I would have envisioned it, but it's really the only way that it works. And I think as a director, you have to decide, okay, what is this going to be about? So like, say, when Kenneth Braddock makes Henry V, he says, okay, this is going to be about Henry V has the consummate, you know, perfect leader, right? Or if you direct, when Polanski directs Macbeth, it's going to be about like the dirty world from which these people come. And it never really changes because Donald Bain goes to see the witches at the end, right? Hamlet, uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet is all about the grandeur and, and the, the pressure of, of being the prince or things like that. I think what's great about this one is that the whole movie is about, if you ask the different characters who this movie is about, of course they would each say it's about themselves, but it's really about Brutus and it's really about Brutus's struggle and earning the eulogy as being the most noble Roman of them all. 
So when I was watching this, I, I, I was reminded of a famous scene, at least to me, and I know to you, from the life of Samuel Johnson, famous scenes from the life of Samuel Johnson. But there's a part in the life of Johnson where Johnson says, public affairs vex no man. And Boswell, his biographer, says something like, weren't you upset about what happened in the House of Commons? And he says, I did not sleep an hour less or eat an ounce less meat. So people go around and say they're concerned about political things. You're supposed to put the right bumper sticker on your car. You're supposed to have the right opinions on Twitter. <clears throat> but that's all show. That was Johnson's point. Like you haven't slept an hour less because of the t-shirt you're wearing. You've never eaten less. But Brutus has. Like Brutus is the one guy who has slept an hour less. He is the one guy who has eaten an ounce less meat. And, and the movie is about him arriving to that moment where he says it must be by his death. Yeah, and I, I think what illustrates that point for me is when he allows Mark Antony to live and they say, no, 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 kill him. And he begs for his life and he says, no, 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 I'm your servant, whatever. And that, and the, the best natured way to interpret that is to allow him to make that funeral oration, which of course he turns the entire crowd against them, right. pounds them out of Rome, you know, raises the legions and, and they battle at Philippi. Uh, but you can tell that it's a mistake the whole time. In other words, if, if this is a Shakespearean tragedy and it's not a tragedy about Julius Caesar, but rather a tragedy about Brutus, his flaw, if you will, is, is mercy. And that's <laughs> so well illustrated by James Mason, who really wants to do the right thing, but he keeps making mistakes every single time. Yeah, there's that great bit where he says, where he finds out that Cassius has been taking bribes. And of course, Cash is kind of like, he gets used to kind of like the perks that come with the job. And, you know, and he says, what are you doing? He goes, I wrote you a letter. I said, what are you doing? And he says, no, no. He says, did we, did we kill Caesar? He says, you know, I think the line is, um, shall one of us that struck this foremost man of the world, are we going to say that we did so just for trash? And he puts his hands out like for just money. And Cash is kind of like, well, you know, a little bit of money, money doesn't hurt anything. But it's about how hard it is for Brutus to keep his values and to keep his, to keep the reason he killed Caesar in front of him the whole time. Well, I think, again, he, he is, his assumption when they all gather in the courtyard is so clearly that everybody cares about the idea of Rome. And then he finds out he's actually in a club of one. All right. In part two, we'll talk about our favorite moments. Hey, welcome back. So in part two, of course, we talk about our favorite moments or key scenes. Dan, why don't you start us off? So we talked before about how good John Gielgud is as Cassius, right? And I think that what's great is, you know, the, the tension of the movie isn't just the assassination. It's him trying to convince Brutus. Like, he's their marquee name. They need Brutus there. Because Brutus believes that there's something that there's something rotten in the state of Rome, so to speak. And it reminded me very much of HUD. Now, what does this have to do with HUD, right? Because remember the problem with the cattle in HUD? What was the matter with their cattle? They all have disease and, yeah. and HUD wants to sell them off somewhere in the north real quick and get rid of them. Right. But his father says, no, you can't do that, right? When there's something wrong with your family, with your home, with your the place you're at, you got to do something to fix it. So that's the pretext for the, for the conspirators. But Brutus really, really believes that. So my moment is when Cassius decides he's going to throw notes into Brutus's window uh, written by citizens of Rome and kind of allude to the Caesar being ambitious. And I think what's great is that the movie is about Cassius as an artist. He reminds me very much of Iago. Now, he's not, he's not like Iago and Othello, right? But this idea that I can manipulate other people to get them to do what I want. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to kind of prey on their vanity 
because we're only human. Brutus is only human, right? So I think that Cassius is really, really good at that. He wants Brutus to see the murder as, as he does later on, because Brutus says, let us be perjurers, not murderers. He says, let us, let us not carve him for hounds, but as a feast for the gods. And I think what the movie does so well is it shows you a sinister side almost of Cassius that I had never, never noticed. I mean, I thought he was scheming. You think when you read the play, like you said a million times, or you watch other productions, you think Cassius does what he's got to do to get this done. But when Gilga does it, there's there's like a, a new dimension to it that I think is incredible. Yeah, I'll take you to my moment, which is the first time Cassius and Brutus are talking and he tells the, he tells the story about them swimming in the river. Right. Uh, right. And it strikes me that that's the way that the whole play is supposed to work. Cause of course you're, if you're, if you have the play in your hand, you're holding a play called Julius Caesar, but Julius Caesar dies you in know, the at the end of act two and he, he disappears from the play. Right. So you, you take the image or idea of a man and Cassius is the character who slowly breaks him down from an idea of this person that everybody's talking about and tells the story of, of when he's drowning, but he does it to illustrate Brutus's vanity in the way that, that you just described, right? You're not killing a legend. You're not killing a God. You're not killing an idea. You're killing a dude that if I hadn't pulled him out of the river 25 years ago would have been dead anyway. Yeah, absolutely. All right, in part three, we'll talk about the ending. Hey, welcome back. So in part three, of course, we always talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways. I assume we're gonna talk about the uh, ending or the key takeaways. Yeah, I think we could skip the title on this one. Well, first, I don't know if you know this, but in the most recent biography of Brando, it's called The Contender. The, I was looking at it again. I read it when it first came out maybe two years ago. But do you know that when this movie was made, John Huston was so impressed by Brando that he said, I want you to come for me and we're gonna make a movie of Richard III and you're going to play Richard, and we're going to shoot it in 3D. No, I didn't know that. That I, is a true that, story. That, that belongs to the uh, shadow gallery of great films that were never made. Yeah, and Brando said, no, I'm not going to do it. And Brando took this role really seriously. You know, he like he he took a lot of advice from John Gielgud. He listened to, to um, recordings of other actors. Like, he really didn't want to embarrass himself. So he did so well that John Huston said, if you don't come and be Richard III for me, I'm never going to make the movie. And Brando said, I can't do it. And John Huston never made the movie. So I, I, I'm saying that because we, you know, we haven't really talked about how good Brando is in that scene. I mean, when James Mason comes out with his theory about why they had to do it, but then of course, Brando comes out with the body, right? You have theory and practice and he totally owns that oration scene. It's really great. But at the ending, I want to talk about another great thing Brando does. It's that when they're in the battle and Brutus's guys are coming into the, like that valley and they're at Philippi and all of a sudden, you know, Brando's got his arm up and he's about to give the command to go in and, and they start routing them. The camera shows that little smirk and it shows a smirk of Octavius, right? And he's watching the whole thing. And I love that because Octavius, not Brando, he's Mark Antony, but Octavius becomes, of course, Augustus, the first emperor. And I love that smirk. It's like the smirk of history. Like, like they were all so clever, but there's another guy. There's a man behind the man. There's another guy behind you who's also loving how this whole thing plays out. Cassius, of course, thought he was going to live forever. But then he's like, oh, it's my birthday. Remember, I get philosophical on my birthday. What is the whole point of my life? Why did I do this? But Octavius is like, no, no. I'm like, you think you're very clever? I'm like one step removed from you. I, I think the interesting thing about the play in general, but also that scene is how little Octavius is actually in it, yeah. right? It, so the the idea is if you were trying to write history, of course, Octavius, there needs to be a play about Octavius. 
Uh, but if you're making it about people trapped in their circumstances, it's got to be about Brutus and Cassius, right? Because Augustus is almost above circumstances. In fact, that's what the smirk is about. The smirk right. is about, I drew a map and you came ex into this valley at exactly this point <laughs> and here you are. So I have your number, but you can't necessarily, you, you can't write a speech for that person. It doesn't right. work. Right. Or if you did, it would be it would be like Richard III. Like he would look at the audience and say, now will I maneuver to become the first emperor? It's, it's, it's the only, right. It, the audience is the only person to, to whom he could unburden his heart. Cause he, he is literally elevated above his circumstance, but you want the people that are in the Valley of the arrows. <laughs> right, right, right. And I love that the smirk of history. I thought that was a great touch by Joe Mankiewicz. So we hope you've enjoyed our conversation about Julius Caesar. You could follow us here on at one five MIN film. You could follow us on Twitter. Mike, where else can people follow us? Letterboxd. Follow us on Letterboxd. Leave comments. Tweet us suggestions. Let us know what we should watch next. Thank you, and please subscribe, everybody. Thanks. See you next time.